Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. (laughs) (laughs) Thought I'd uh, change it up a little bit. Hi Octavia, how are you? Well, because you said it like that, you know, I feel like I'm like the magician's like spangly assistant. <laughs> like I'm coming you on are. stage and like you are spangly. sequence. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm not feeling that spangly tonight, <laughs> but I'm fine. I'm good. I'm busy. I just, I've taken on too much work. I did a freelancer panic and just said yes to a thousand things and, um, and they're all really great things, but they are stretching me, <laughs> but it's good. I, I'm, I'm still panicking about the dark mornings and evenings. I get up early and I'm sad that it's now already dark when I get up. I find, I'm finding that a bit a bit tough. But the exciting thing is I'm working on the edits for my book and the sort of, I was going to say second draft, but the final draft will be finished at the end of uh, next month. So that is Woo-hoo. extremely exciting and incredibly nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wild ride, baby. <laughs> How about you? How are you? Yeah, I, it's so boring that we're both like, I'm busy, but I'm, all, I'm also <laughs> I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm depressed about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> That's just us every time. Yeah. Um, no, I'm I'm pretty busy. I have been fully thrust into the busyness of autumn, which I know is coming every year, and still it somehow takes me by surprise. Um, and it is there is a certain exhilaratingness about it, you know, like that back to school feeling. And I like buzzing around and I like, you know, feeling like I'm doing things, but I also get exhausted and frustrated. So I'm, I'm veering between those states Yeah, right now. Relatable, relatable yeah. content. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the show today, we are talking to the writer and artist Lizzie Stewart, whose debut graphic novel, Allison, was published this year. Allison is a subtle and beautiful story of a young woman who leaves her rural life and her marriage in Dorset for a much older famous painter in 1970s London. There she learns to find her own artistic voice and reflects on a life lived in art. In honor of Allison, we thought we'd return to a theme we explored with the artist Nick Hayes all the way back in 2014 before the show was even a podcast. And that theme is graphic novels. We'll be talking about our favorite graphic novels, what excites us about the form, and whether graphic novels can give a new perspective on things like memoir and politics. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Lizzie Octavia? Sure, Carrie. Lizzie Stewart is an illustrator and author from Plymouth who lives and works in London. She's written and illustrated three picture books for children alongside Walking Distance, an illustrated essay, and It's Not What You Thought It Would Be, a graphic short story collection. Her debut picture book, There's a Tiger in the Garden, won the Illustrated Books category of the 2017 Waterstones Children's Book Prize, as well as a World Illustration Award. She teaches illustration at Goldsmiths College. Also, a quick reminder that we are on Patreon if you would like to support the work that we do and get extra special spangly content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction. You will get monthly exclusive minisodes, which means we will be in your ears three times a month, as well as the chance to suggest topics for us. We've had some really fun topics lately, including book lists and also clothes. You could also find a list of all the books we recommend today on bookshop.org. Now stay tuned for our interview with Lizzie Stewart, a discussion of the graphic novels we love and the joys of the form, And finally, our usual reading recommendations. So let us draw you closer for the next hour of literary (laughs) friction. Sorry, I didn't even, yeah, I've. (laughs) 
I should stop doing these. I don't no, even try. You anymore. need to up your game. You don't stop, you up your game. <laughs> Lizzie Stewart, welcome to Literary Friction. Hello, thanks so much for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Alison. Do you mind setting it up for us? Of course. So this is basically the very start of the book, minus a couple of paragraphs. Um, So we're meeting Alison for, for the very first time. Andrew was 20 when I met him, and I was 17. Andrew. I would say his name under my breath before I went to sleep. His name was the incantation that summoned the rush of intense feelings that I so desperately craved. I don't doubt that it was love, but it was love for Andrew mixed in with love of love. In the early stages, it was also a feverish obsession. It was madness. I'd wait in the park till my hands turned grey-blue so that I could catch him on his way home from work. I'd pretend to be absorbed in my reading and would look up nonchalantly as he passed. I saved up my pocket money, rarely doled out and meagre when it was, to buy the records he talked about. I pushed my own records under the bed. I took down my posters, incriminating evidence that I had once been a 13-year-old girl. I changed for him, though he never once asked me to. I left school four months after we met, knowing that we would surely get married within the year. It wasn't a smart decision, but no one tried to talk me out of it. My parents adored him. He was nice. I was fast-tracking my route to an ordinary life. It made sense. An ordinary life seemed like the right thing to do. Three days after I turned 18, with a paper-hatted birthday party in the back garden, we got married, quietly in a registry office. My mum was furious that we didn't get married in the church, but I didn't care. We felt so modern. We felt modern, but we weren't, not really, and we barely knew each other. We were just kids from the coast who had opted for the most straightforward course of action. There hadn't been a point where we'd stopped to consider what the alternative might be. We were poor, not tragically so, but enough that every day was built around working out how to stretch Andrew's poultry paycheck across the whole month. He worked in the town council in an administrative role that I could not muster the interest to ask about. I took on sewing and mending work for the local girls' school, which made me feel like a good Victorian wife and... More worryingly, a lot like my mother. Our house was 15 miles from the town we both grew up in. It felt like making a fresh start, but it wasn't. We'd rented it from the big estate that owned most of the houses along the cliffs. They'd paint them all the same shade of pale yellow to try and create a sense of local historical spirit. I thought really the yellow paint was an attempt to hide the weather-beaten dilapidation that befell most of the buildings in the area. Inside, it was dark and chilly, and I was on my own a lot of the time. The bath was in a poorly constructed extension that rattled in high winds. Even in summer, I struggled to find a spot where the light was strong enough to sew a cushion cover or read a book, and often ended up dragging half the living room outdoors to do my work. Nevertheless, we tried our hardest to be happy. But I was bored, and I was lonely. The thing about our marriage was that there was no one thing about it. No one thing that told me why I was there, nor why I would ever leave. 
Two years in, I realized that my life was no better or worse because of it. I think every girl wants better or worse, ideally better, I suppose, but sometimes worse can be so delicious, so enlivening that we'll take it simply to have something to do. Thanks, Lizzie. And I want to get more into the that text and the way the text interacts with the illustrations in, in this book. But but first, I'd love if you could just talk about what inspired you to write about Alison. How did she come to you? Why did you want her to be the star of this graphic novel? Um, she came to me in a few different ways that all happened to coincide roughly around the same time. So I read Nell Dunn's Talking to Women and was reading that. And obviously it's a kind of brilliant summation of how women are feeling were feeling in the 1960s, but it's also a summation of how we, women feel generally um, about things like marriage and sex and work and art. Um, and then roughly around the same time, my mum gave me a box of my grandma's writing. So bits of her poetry and kind of essays that she'd written in her early 20s. So she had one child, she was newly married, um, and she was trying to figure out who she was and how she was and who she might be. And all of that stuff felt I mean, obviously very familiar. It's the stuff that we all think about and talk about, regardless of whether it's the 60s or the 70s or right now. Um, and it felt, um, she, yeah, she felt very tangible in that writing. Um, and from that, I kind of was starting to think about, I suppose, those kind of issues, like the point at which we start figuring out who who we are and what we want and how that might be stayed off course. Yeah, well, I mean, talking of being blown off course, in the novel, Alison runs away from her life in Dorset to be with Patrick Kerr, who's this famous artist, and who's uh, more than 20 years older than her. And, you know, she never sees her relationship with Patrick as purely exploitative. But she, you know, part of the kind of narrative development is her becoming aware of the huge power difference between them. And you know, he didn't really support her work in the way that he could have done. And it's a complicated relationship that she feels complicatedly about. And it felt so real and so recognizable to me. And I'm not in the art world, but you know, it just, it, it feels almost like a kind of archetypal dynamic. And I wonder if you would agree with that and, and why you wanted to explore that relationship. Well, um, Thank you. It, it felt real. That's um, good. And also, I mean, sad. I think everyone says it feels quite real. And I suppose, I mean, I say everyone, I mean, a lot of women. And I suppose that kind of familiarity, even that if even if you haven't lived it, there's something, sometimes you brush up against it in your life of like, oh, that, that character is somehow not dangerous, but maybe I am in danger by being around that kind of thing. And Alison never really condemns Patrick for his behavior. And I don't think his behavior is, he sails so close to the wind in terms of whether he is condemnable or just kind of a, a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what interested me about it was living as a woman in her 30s right now, I think. My friends and I, we talk about 
these relationships and we're reappraising relationships from our teens and 20s in a kind of like was that okay did that did that uh go how it should have gone and um it I found it fascinating to think of the generations before me and us and how they might be kind of thinking about things that were not short teenage relationships but relationships that defined whole eras of their life and I found that um quite a fascinating place to put my character right and like when you put that relationship in the context of the great male artist and his younger female model slash muse right it like distills it so acutely um and of course part of the story is that Alison moves beyond the realm of muse and she does kind of become an artist in her own right but I wanted to ask you, you know, how you feel about the idea of the muse. Do you think we need to move beyond it as a concept culturally? Do you think it's useful to us anymore? Oh gosh, I, I mean, probably, probably not. I mean, probably, <laughs> I don't think it serves much of a purpose in actual living day to day, like the real life of art and all of that stuff. I think narratively, people are fixated on it. I think in general, people want people I'm grossly generalizing this um <laughs> feel free <laughs> it's fine just broad strokes really broad strokes um I guess yeah it feels like people want a story a lot of the time when it comes to art because because we're told from an early age that this is this grand impenetrable elevated thing and I think what makes that feel manageable maybe um certainly through stories we read in the media and, and novels and films is often boiling it down to kind of narrative elements. And I think the muse is one of those narrative elements that just is, is pleasing to an outsider. Oh, that makes sense that he would have this magical woman come in and, and be the, the embodiment of idea and thought and creativity and stuff when actually she's just a woman and she's got her own stuff going on. Maybe we should leave her alone. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about the the narrative of the artist as I was reading this. And one of the things I really loved about Allison is she's not that good when she starts out <laughs> of making art. And I don't I don't think there's a lot of art about that, about artists just being like mediocre and then working really hard to be better. And that's true of both Allison and her friend Tessa. And, you know, is that something you yourself have felt as an artist? And was that something you really wanted to to show in, in terms of her journey. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously out of the gates, I was, I was amazing. Uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't falter from about 20 to now. It's all been, it's all been great. No, I, I definitely felt there's that thing of sometimes when you read a book that is about uh, the thing that you do. So, and musicians must, must get it reading novels about music and yeah, all, all the jobs. Um, is, is sometimes it's a bit cringy when you read descriptions of, of artists and how they work because you're like, well, it's not like that. You'd, you're not immediately a genius most of the time. Um, and and I wanted to write about a kind of profoundly unextraordinary artist. And even at the end of the book, she's not a big name. She's, she's fine. She's good. Um, and she's made it in her own, on her own terms. But she doesn't excel from day one, and I certainly didn't excel from day one. And 
I think that felt way more realistic and way more tangible and a more honest, as far as I can see, a more a more honest way of explaining what it feels like to be an artist is that most of the time you're just trying and sometimes it works. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and Carrie mentioned Alison's friend Tessa, who I think is my favourite character um, in the book. She's so fantastic. And she she's a sculptor and she she kind of opens Alison's mind, doesn't she? She has this really profound effect on her, but um, as an artist, as well as just as a young woman. And I, I love the way you draw their friendship. It felt very, again, very true, but also just, it's very moving, that kind of a friendship that's just very open and loving. And I don't know, I wanted to ask you about Tessa. Like, why why did you want to include her? How did you find your way to her? Did she come to you like a kind of, I don't know, fully formed or tell me, tell me about Tessa. <laughs> Tessa is also my favourite, but that's probably because she's an amalgamation of my own friends, I suppose, and um, the things that I value in other people um, as maybe a sort of more wishy-washy person. I like people who are kind of a bit bolder and stronger and willing to steer proceedings a little when I'm being indecisive. So Tessa is a black woman working in art in the 80s. So she is there in the same world that Alison is in as a working class woman, but she has the same challenges and more. Um, And so Tessa is kind of primarily... I was thinking, who who would Alison, who would be Alison's friend in this situation? She needs an ally because she's out of her depth and she needs someone to kind of um, face all this with. And who in this situation, they meet at a very grand kind of fancy private view and who would be in that, in that world and feel as outside as she does. And obviously when I was thinking about that, Tessa just sort of came then quite fully formed as the person who would see Alison and see the potential friendship. I mean, I love, I love the idea of kind of romantic friendship and these friendships that last for, for decades and the, the defining relationship of your life might not be romantic and it, the kind of end of it all, the things we look back on might be uh, the person who is your best friend through all of it. And speaking of looking back at your life, this novel follows the course of a life. It, it really kind of starts at the beginning and ends at the end. And I wonder why you wanted to capture that whole sweep of a life. I was also just thinking about, especially when when Allison's a lot older, did you think about writing from the perspective of someone who was like looking back over their life and speaking quite wisely about it? I think she just she just kept I think that the joy of writing writing a life was that it just keeps unfolding and once you've spent enough time with the character you can kind of work out where they're going next so what was initially meant to be I think in my head a story about her life in the 70s and 80s was like but then what happens what what's the result of all this and it 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 just kind of kept coming but the bit at the end was um I think I maybe relate to her most when she's in her 60s when she's feeling kind of proud of herself but also conflicted about the way that maybe she begins the novel as a, a working class young woman in Dorset and ends in London with at least externally all the trappings of a very upper middle class life and she feels kind of confused and um, maybe a bit bothered by that 
and I think um, that kind of complexity of our relationship to class felt quite relatable and um, and it, I, I kind of wanted it in there. Yeah, there's a real through line for sure. And I mean, the whole question of privilege obviously is brought front and centre by Patrick, who comes from this very privileged family and, and it's clear how much easier it made it for him to break into the art world. I mean, um, we don't get like an enormous amount of his backstory, but it, the ease with which he moves through that world just, and that's part of one of the things that makes him so recognisable as a character, right? And I wondered, like, was he, did you have anyone, any particular artists in mind when you, because when Carrie and I were reading it, we both thought of Lucy and Freud, obviously, and Celia Paul, but like, I mean, it could be any number, it could be any number. Um, but yeah, I wondered if there was a model for him. And, and also, if you think that, that kind of easy privilege is still something that makes it easier for men like Patrick in the art world today, or if things are changing at least a bit. I hope things are changing a bit. I definitely, Patrick isn't based on anyone particular. There are, I suppose, a lifetime of reading about the great male artists as an art student and all of, all of that kind of is in my head and, you can kind of read between the lines when you're reading these biographies or, or um, accounts and kind of guess work out like, oh, he probably wasn't that fun to be around. That doesn't actually sound great. <laughs> um, and then as for whether it's getting better, I don't know, but I definitely, I mean, I definitely encounter those characters, both male and female who have grown up, I think, with a certain amount of space and the space is gifted by having the money to have a really great work, workspace or, you know, you can afford to take a month or two off to work on that project that you've been thinking about or whatever version of, of kind of the gift of space that some people get is just makes, it just makes such a difference to what you're able to do as an artist or a creative person. And it, it's not for everyone. It's, it's not available to everyone. I want to ask you a little bit more about the process of of making this graphic novel. I just, first of all, could you just tell us how it all came together? Did you write it first and then illustrate it? Did you have a bare bones outline of what you wanted to do and illustrated it and then wrote it? I'm so curious about what your process is like for writing something like this, because there are a lot of moving parts, aren't there? Yeah, I can't, I cannot endorse this. <laughs> A way of spending your time it's not very sensible <laughs> um, but luckily it was lockdown so I was trapped and had to do it um so I I write everything first and I might do some kind of character sketches early on to figure out kind of who these people might be and that makes it easier to write about them but mostly yeah I wrote everything and then I make these mad mad books um which are these cheap very cheap sketchbooks and I print out the script and cut up all of the pages into different chunks of text that I then print stick into my books and, and draw these sketches and you get these kind of quite chaotic almost completely unreadable to any anyone else books that are ba basically the book in its barest form and from that I'm able to kind of work out what it would feel like to read this book in terms of the relationship of pictures to words so I think, I suppose the main difference for me is 
between writing prose and, and writing and illustrating is that there's stuff, there's a lot of taking out that you can do when you realize you can draw something instead of writing it. Yeah, there's a lot of chopping and moving around to make way for pictures and to figure out the kind of pacing. The pacing changes a lot when you add in pictures and suddenly something that felt really small, a very small conversation feels massive because it's taken three pages or four pages or five pages of drawing. So the physical rough book is really important to me. Yeah, I I love the way that graphic novels in that way reward rereading. Like maybe even more so than if you're just reading a novel, um, you're noticing things that you didn't notice the first time. And sometimes that actually stresses me out about reading graphic novels as I feel like I'm not getting everything and I don't know what I should be getting. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if you think about that, like how much do I want people to get? How much do I want to be a kind of secretive part or something they might pick up on on a third reading it, it must be hard to know what to kind of bring to the fore and to and what to make a bit more obscure or subtle yeah I I mean I feel exactly the same and I think most I would say most people when they read a graphic novel the first time you're in a, you're in a bit of a panic <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad to <laughs> say that because I feel the same yeah, way it's um it's <laughs> it can be really difficult because also your eye travels when you first look at a double spread, you see the whole thing and then your brain panics. Because you're like, have I seen something I'm not meant to see? I have to focus on this panel by panel, but there's something going on over here and I can't help but notice that. And it can be it can be quite a jarring reading experience. I think I think it's quite common. I hope it is, because it's certainly how I feel a lot of the time. So one of the reasons the book has kind of big, bigger chunks of text in and a mix of kind of full page more picture booky style images versus paneled comic style is to give that breathing space and to kind of invite you to slow down or just pause and reflect for a second before you go into another intensely paneled section. And I think part of that comes from, I'm also a picture book writer and illustrator. So part of that comes from loving picture books and the way that a full page image can tell a story. And part of that also comes from being more of a, a traditional novel reader, perhaps, than a graphic novel reader. I, I feel like an illustrator who happens to have illustrated a book. I don't necessarily always feel like a graphic novelist. Yeah, I, um, I, do, I do love them, but I understand that they can be overwhelming and anything that helps you slow down a bit while you're reading and says it's fine to kind of come back later is, is useful. Yeah, I really, I loved those pages of text. Um, I, was really, I was really glad to have them. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I loved the illustrations too. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about with the illustrations is like, it's hard to say, write a book where somebody's a poet and reliably reproduce poetry that is believably the poetry that that person would make. And I was thinking that in the context of Alison's art, you know, like how did you settle on a style for her and how you wanted to reproduce that in a way that would kind of fit within the story, but was also within your style of illustration. I imagine that must've been difficult to conceive. Yes. <laughs> You've hit on the crisis of the book. Um, <laughs> uh, Carrie yeah. has a real knack for doing that. <laughs> really honed in on the thing that um, gave me the most insecurity was that I'd written a book about people who were meant to be great artists. And then I suddenly, 
I just kept leaving it. I was like, I just kept leaving gaps in the book. I was like, that'll be one of Alison's paintings or that'll be one of Patrick's paintings. And then I'd done absolutely everything. I had the whole lot and suddenly, oh, you've got, you've got to do this. You've got to invent some art and it has to be believable. So I actually scrapped Patrick's art. I thought maybe it's more interesting if we don't know what he paints. There's one painting, but it's quite small and you don't, you don't really see it up close um, because I'd made so, so many bold claims about how good he was. And was I'm not a... I'm not a portrait painter and I'm not really a figurative painter. Um, so that would be, that would really bring you out of the experience of reading the book if suddenly you were faced with quite a wobbly, wonky <laughs> portrait <laughs> and you were expected to believe it was brilliant. So um, you should just stuck a Picasso <laughs> in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just shamelessly used uh, all the greats and, and amalgamated them into one, made a horrible collage. Um, but Alison's, <laughs> Alison's did feel more manageable because, as I said earlier, she, she's not meant to be brilliant. She's meant to be a good artist and and I could use things that I do in my own painting like also it when we see her work it's quite small it's reproduced quite small we're not we're not going in on great de- in great detail yeah and and I did which is not to say as I was reading it I was like ooh, not believable but I did <laughs> I did find myself thinking wow this must have been a really difficult process to to come up with these artworks which I thought fit really believably within the story as someone not that au fait with contemporary <laughs> art <laughs> good. that's pretty good I'm relieved <laughs> um, I, I wasn't sure how to ask this question but I cried numerous times reading this book and I was wondering what your relationship was with that emotion when you were when you were writing it I mean would you ever cry while writing a story or would you ever think I want people to cry or were you just trying to depict something that was true that would be meaningful yes um so I was draw- writing and drawing in lockdown so crying was <laughs> frequent <laughs> um, <laughs> regardless of what I was doing um uh I I'm a crier in general it doesn't take much so I quite like crying at a novel I like a little book cry feels like a treat and um it's also quite interesting because you're kind of in control of it because you can stop reading at any given moment so the the experience of crying whilst reading a novel I always find quite a fascinating and kind of cathartic experience but whilst I was writing yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. There's that, there's a kind of grubbiness to the idea that you might be wanting to make people cry. And I de- definitely wasn't sat at home thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to get, I've, I've done it here. But there was definitely moments when I was writing, because I suppose when you're writing someone's life, even if they're fictional, you're tuning into what it would feel like to move around in that body and to exist in the world as that person. And so there are points when things happen to her or she has certain realizations where either I was relating them to my own life or just thinking, yeah, this would be, this would be a big thing for her or this would be a big moment. So I was aware, I suppose, that there were some loaded bits. Um, but I, have, I have been surprised by how many people have told me 
that they've cried. And also, I'm not disappointed by it. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm okay with making people cry, but I was telling my friend about it the other day and she, she was saying I had to ask everyone when they cried because uh, in my friends were, had kind of read the book and were telling me, <laughs> telling me their thoughts about it. That sounds like quite an intense chat, but it was pleasant. They, they, they both cried, but at kind of different points. And, and yeah, they're like, oh, you've got to find out when it is. Maybe you could get a, a view of the person depending on which bit. Oh my God, definitely. <laughs> but also, like, I found some of the bits that I found the most moving were not the points of the highest emotional tension, actually, because, you know, you're showing a whole life there without giving too much away. There are moments of profound loss, which are, of course, in themselves incredibly moving, but like, there were moments that moved me that were, I mean, really just so much of the friendship with Tessa, because I, like you, I believe in romantic friendship and it's, I think they are definitely the greatest stories of our lives in a lot of ways. And I'm just, I'm, I'm always so pleased to see them written about like that and with such tenderness as well. So I was just profoundly moved by that. But I think there's also something really, really moving about the project of showing us a person's whole life. And for that person to not be this remarkable history-defining figure, right? There is just something moving about that because it's it's truth, it's reality. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I um, I realised recently. So Raymond Briggs's Ethel and Ernest is uh, a beautiful. I suppose it's a graphic novel. So is the story of his parents' marriage, and I remember reading that when I was about twenty, when I was studying illustration, and um, it just being this revelatory moment of like oh you can tell a story that's just two ordinary people going about their business and trying to live and that's that's enough and and then when I kind of tuned into thinking about Ethel and Ernest and Raymond Briggs I suddenly realized there was a picture book that I read almost daily when I was a child um called Minnie and Ginger by bury someone I don't remember and it was just again the story of these two people through through kind of turn of the century industrial Britain but it was a picture book for children it was um it was very uh very dry material but it was beautiful and um I suddenly realized that I'd done Minnie and Ginger and Ethel and Ernest in in, in graphic novel form um and that's where that came from um yeah, just just lifted it from picture books. <laughs> <laughs> well, picture books are as high an art form as anything else. Um, and um, on that note, Lizzie Stewart, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thanks so much for having me. This episode is sponsored by Picador. The art world, rife with ambition, ego, money, and influence, has always provided a rich tapestry for exploring complex power dynamics. From the artist-muse relationship, the uncertainty and struggle for creativity, or the merging powers of the academy and the market, it's not surprising that this world continues to capture the imaginations of writers working today. But what happens when domestic family life and artistic endeavor collide? 
The Exhibitionist by Charlotte Mendelssohn is a novel that explores the complexity and toxicity of when ambition, ego, and messy family dynamics meet head on. The Exhibitionist takes place across a single weekend where preparations are being made at the home of famous artist and notorious narcissist Ray Hanrahan for his exhibition opening, his first in over a decade. His adult children, family, and an assortment of friends have been summoned, but what of Lucia, Ray's steadfast and selfless wife? She's an artist too, but has had to keep her own ambitions hidden, ignoring her gallerist's calls since any good news for her means upsetting her husband's temperamental ego. But as familial tensions rise and the exhibition approaches and guests begin to gather, Lucia must finally make a choice. The Sunday Telegraph has hailed the novel as electric, both a roiling family drama and a chilling portrait of enmeshment and enabled addiction. And The Guardian has described it as wise, emotionally astute, and addictive. Longlisted for this year's Women's Prize for Fiction, The Exhibitionist by Charlotte Mendelssohn is an evocative, darkly funny and ferocious exploration of art, ambition and sacrifice, of the fury and longing that hide beneath the surface of domestic life. Out now and available from your local independent bookshop or to order from bookshop.org. Okay, so we're back here to talk about our theme, which is the graphic novel. And so I want to start with the personal question, as we sometimes do. Are you a big graphic novel reader, Octavia? Well, not as much as I'd like to be. Um, and and I'm getting back to it, actually. Um, I mean, I always read comics as a kid and as a teenager and and loved them, really loved them. And um got really into French. The French have this huge tradition of, of comic books and graphic novels, Bond Dissiné, which I want to talk about a bit further on in the chat. But yeah, I I love them. And then I sort of grew out of them, I guess, and uh, encouraged to do so probably by the culture rather than, I can't imagine that I suddenly just didn't like reading them anymore. Maybe I didn't know what to read. And then I fell out of the habit. And now I find the way that my eye has to move to read them like demanding because I'm out of practice. And I was so consoled when Lizzie said she found the same <laughs> as someone who works in that in that medium, because I've always felt like it was a deficiency in me as a reader and that I've let it become a bit of a block. But I have to say, I've loved getting back into them. And partly the reason that that started to happen is because of my dear friend, Sophie, who um, is is an artist in all kinds of ways, but one of the ways in which she works with visual medium is she's she does the color for all kinds of comics, including one called Bitterroot, which you may have heard of. And my favorite one that she's doing is this amazing comic called Golden Rage, which basically bills itself as think Battle Royale meets Golden Girls. Oh my God. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's these hot muscled grandmas just being extremely badass. And I am like dying to get my hands on on the second in the series. And I think there's three out now. I've only got the first one. Um, but yeah, I, st- I started reading comics again to kind of see her work and it's really paved the way for me to get back into the form and then you know really get back into graphic novels as well so you know I'm not a big graphic novel reader in recent times I am hoping to be a much bigger graphic novel reader going forward what about you well I'd love to say I read a lot of graphic novels so where this will be a great conversation but <laughs> I'm not a huge graphic novels reader either and I have friends who love them and always seem to be, you know, reading the latest 
fuzzy one and that's not me. But I do find myself picking them up more and more. I, I was reflecting on, since we last did this topic, I've definitely become more of a reader of graphic novels. And really, you know, not maybe not making the distinction in the same way that I used to between like a graphic novel and a novel um, in a good way. I think like in the culture, it's maybe started to merge a little bit more and people aren't as eager to separate out them as like completely different things from each other. And actually when people recommended Allison to me, which I read on the recommendation of friends, basically, you know, it wasn't like, oh my God, you have to read this because it's a graphic novel. It was like, oh my God, you have to read this because it's a good story. And I've done that with other books too. Um, and I know what you mean about getting stressed about reading them. And I, I mentioned that in our conversation with Lizzie. I mean, in some ways it's like a real joy that you can read them so quickly, but that stresses me out as well because I'm like, am I reading these in the right way? You know, should I be lingering over it more? And then I feel like I'm being impatient and I, I just get in my own head about it. And I think the trick, as she was saying, is like, just stop worrying about those things. Like read, read them in the way that you want to and enjoy them in the way that you want to. And, and maybe we both need to, you know, explore that block even more. Totally. Also, because when you first start reading in any way, you worry about that, you know, and then you just get adept at it. And you know that sometimes you're not going to take in every piece of information in a novel and it won't matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like when I think back to what I remember about novels as well, it's kind of shocking how much just doesn't stick with you. So what why is it, it so different? Fascinating is what you and I remember from the same book is always really different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is, isn't it? Yeah. But that's why we're a good team. Yeah. Hopefully we cover all the bases. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something we talked about on our show with Nick Hayes, but what do you think about the term graphic novel? Um, it was invented in the 60s, and authors like Alan Moore have complained that it's just a fancy way of saying comic. You were talking about comics earlier, and he says this is a marketing ploy. It's it's designed to make people think that this is fancier than a comic, but really it's just comics. So should we all just say comics? Yeah, I don't know. I kind of um, I kind of did a little bit of a deep dive on this because I was thinking, you know, I've never really uh, thought about what the word comic comes, you know, it's just the word I've used. Where does it come from? And of course it comes from comic strip. And the whole idea behind the comic strip was that it was like a brief sequence of illustrations that were traditionally published in a serialized way in a newspaper or in a magazine. So you'd get the new installment of the story every day or every week, depending. And like, you know, we used to call them cartoons, right? Like the same kind of thing. You, you look for your next installment of the cartoon. And even though then you have the term comic book, right, which suggests a longer narrative than a comic strip, I feel like there's still a kind of expectation of brevity folded into the word comic, an expectation of like a, a, a brief witticism or something, you know, Obviously, it's also a word that means to be funny. Um, and it's a term that comes from the tradition, the American tradition of, of these strips being funny, being humorous. And of course, now it's been kind of cut loose from that meaning. But I think also it's really important to say that like discussing this terminology, it really keeps the conversation in a very Western culture centric place, which would be really problematic when talking about the history of this kind of expression. And, and I was looking a little bit up about the history of the comic book. And, and it's actually relatively new in United States and, and United Kingdom. Um, they kind of took root in the US and in the UK during the 1930s. 
whereas they have their origins in the 18th century in Japan. Some of them are called kuzazoshi, and they were often serialized adventure comics. So, you know, we're talking about a form of expression that that stretches far beyond my no- my knowledge and experience, but also far beyond the, the borders of, of the stuff that we will have been coming across. And of course, there's different cultural significance in different places around the world. Like I, I mentioned before, in France, they're crazy for the bande dessinée, which people translate bande dessinée as comic, but actually it doesn't have a root in a word that means funny at all. It literally means drawn strip. And the bande dessinée has a much wider kind of category than the term comic. So. I sort of wonder if using the term graphic novel is useful because it opens out the reader's expectation that maybe this won't be simply an adventure story or simply like a, a witty quip. Like maybe it's not going to be full of loads of action. Maybe it will tell a different kind of story or maybe bringing the word novel into play means that you open the portal that the word novel refers to, which is obviously any story. I mean, it could be a novel doesn't really mean anything specific anymore. So I don't know. But then I also think that this is something that people who feel very grounded within the world of graphic novels would feel much more strongly about and would have a much more informed opinion about. Yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? And it, and it also, the thing that comes into it a little bit is is snobbishness. Always. Because I, th- I think I think you could say I mean I think people are snobby about graphic novels, but I think they're even more snobby about comics. And maybe like you could say, okay, graphic novels are just a way of of letting snobby people feel okay about reading comics. I don't I don't know what you think. Right. I think it also really depends who you're talking to. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are um, kind of more in that world, or they're illustrators or they're working in, you know, video games as well. There's a lot of crossover who aren't snobby about it at all. And in fact, like you would be in the minority to express that snobbery and you'd be <laughs> you'd be run out of the bar. So I think it I think it really depends who you're talking to. I think if you're talking to anyone from the old school literary establishment, then expect to meet some snobbery there. But also like those are not the people who you should be looking to for good opinions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they move so slowly, you know, it feels like they're still really only just getting their head around the fact that like women and queer people and people of color might have interesting stories to tell. I think it's like a step too far for them to uh, accept that pictures can also tell stories. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? There definitely is. Um, you know, famously, the Man Booker Prize only nominated a graphic novel for the first time in 2018, which was uh, a book called Sabrina by Nick Dernasso, which I really recommend. It's incredible. But uh, yeah, it's also, I think it's changing. I think the success of books like Mouse or Fun Home by Alison Bechdel really shifted things. And on top of that, ever since 2014, I really think it's changed things that that like comics and kind of fantasy and other maybe more like nerdy fringe things have come into popular culture much more. There's just been a mixing of genre and high and low and what people are interested in. And like Fun Home is a musical now. Neil Gaiman's The Sandman is this big budget adaptation on Netflix. I just I just feel like people are more receptive to different genre and different kinds of ways of thinking about art and are not maybe are not as snobby as they used to be. So what is your recommendation on our theme of graphic novels? 
Mine is Alison Bechdel's The Secret to Superhuman Strength, which I'm pretty sure I've recommended before on the show when I was reading it, but I just, I cannot miss the chance to do so again because it is such a wonderful book. Um, and it's a memoir. It's about Bechdel's lo- lifelong obsession with exercise, which is not something that I suffer from, <laughs> but she takes from there. She takes you on this kind of romp through literary history and her relationship with mortality and love and sexuality, loss, kind of compulsion, self-improvement, the problem with self-improvement, transcendence, like it's got it all. And she, I think she's such a sort of philosopher in a way. Yeah, she is a genius and I somehow have not read that yet, even though I have it sitting next to my bed. So this is my You also share the obsession, Carrie. I, I know, can't believe you I know haven't it's read like it. made for me. I don't know. Maybe it's too close. I'm too afraid to read it. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but I would like to recommend the book I mentioned earlier, Sabrina by Nick Dernasso. It's a very unsettling graphic novel, um, which I was dipping back into last night to remind myself about it. And I remember I remember just how unsettling it was in the best possible way. But it's the story of a woman named Sabrina who disappears and basically the aftermath of this act. I don't want to say much more about it, but it's it's a very brilliant and quite subtle commentary on violence, gender, polarization in America, it seems just as relevant now, if not more relevant than it was in 18 when it was published. And um, it's often bleak uh, and it's unsettling, as I said, it's challenging, but it made me want to keep reading and it stayed with me. And I think that that's what all the best novels do. Fantastic. I'm Carrie Plitt, back with Octavia Bright and Lizzie Stewart to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? With pleasure. Um, I'm very excited about this one. I just finished listening um, to the audiobook of a novel called The Wolf Border by Sarah Hall, which I'm not sure when it was published, but you know, a little while ago now. And um, the plot is basically about this plan to reintroduce wolves to Cumbria in the north of England. But Hall uses this premise as, I guess, it's really like the jumping off place for a book that is about so much more. It's about desire, it's about freedom, it's about family, it's about femininity. I mean, she's known as a writer for her really vivid descriptions of landscapes and and especially endangered landscapes. And, And that's all present here. But in this book, her narrator is a woman called Rachel. And Rachel's interior world is described just as vividly. And she does this amazing thing where the boundary between the descriptions of the internal and external world is just totally permeable. Um, And in the writing, I found myself just as gripped by these long landscape scenes and scenes with the wolves as I was by all of the human drama, of which, you know, there is plenty. Um, But it's this very deft, very skillful switching between modes that I think it made me realize how much writing I've read where it's not that deft and you really do feel like there's these parallel strands to the story, whereas this, they feel totally knitted together. And Rachel is also just kind of a fantastic character to spend time with. She's pretty tricky um, at times. She's rejected a lot of the things that, you know, are supposed to be womanly. She wants, you know, to be a, a wolf tracker. She does not want to be doing sort of I get homesteady things, let's say. And I don't know, it was just, it was, it was very gripping. 
It also had some of the best sex scenes I've read in such a long time, just so embodied. And it makes sense really that someone who's so keenly attuned to kind of the natural world would be very keenly attuned to, to sort of the physical body and the animal drive for, for sex and, and lust. So yeah, very, very rich story. Um, and it's really beautifully narrated by Louise Brearley on Audible. So I highly recommend that as a listen. Yes. Um, I haven't read that novel, but I know Sarah Hall and she's such a sensual writer, as you were saying. I, I love her prose. Um, there aren't many people who are better. High praise. <laughs> <laughs> Lizzie, what's your recommendation? Um, so I'm going to be uh, slightly obnoxious and recommend a book that's not out till January, but means you have time to pre-order it because it's, um, it's just amazing. And that is Kick the Latch by Catherine Scanlon, which is a story based on some transcribed interviews that Scanlon made with a horse trainer called Sonia. And each one from, from those interviews, she, she kind of restructured that conversation into these kind of vignettes and each one follows actually the path of her life so it's another it's another start start to end lifetime story some of them are very brief almost just a few few lines on the page and some of them are a couple of pages but they're all fairly concise and they tell the story of this woman who is working with horses and jockeys in this quite transient, quite harsh and often really violent world. And then in amongst that are these moments of just beautiful care and tenderness between people and animals. And then you're straight back into the horrifying brutality of, of and realities of horse racing. And Sonia, the narrator, is this very capable, quite hard, quite tough, almost almost brutal in her own way character and yet she's also simultaneously kind of kind and um she has a very kind of crystal clear way of looking at things and describing things and she's the kind of person that it feels like you'd be scared of maybe on initial encounter like there's a there's a roughness to the world and that you would assume that someone would have to have to be in that world but the way that Scanlon writes about it you're kind of you become kind of best friends with Sonia in a way. You're you're really um, you're there with her the whole time, and she becomes. I, I always was expecting her to just walk into the room. I felt like she was she was so vivid, and and I I had so many feelings about horses, which I've just never had. <laughs> <laughs> never been a horse person, and and this book really changed my mind. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's a really staggering piece of work it's so it's short I, I read it in almost one sitting just kind of desperate for more of this world that um was so alien to me this kind of American horse racing world somebody else was raving to me about this the other day and they said almost exactly the same thing they were like I didn't think I cared about horses <laughs> this book made me care about horses which it's is almost the highest praise isn't it yeah it's a real game changer I'm gonna be uh <laughs> 
yeah, down the staples all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's going to be the subject of the next graphic novel. <laughs> Absolutely not. If you ever tried to draw a horse. <laughs> <laughs> I have. And every time it is, it looks like a banana. <laughs> <laughs> Quite exactly. Yeah. Um, so I am going to recommend a novel called Trespasses by Louise Kennedy. The, the British would say trespasses. I would say would. Tres- <laughs> I would say trespasses. Um, but now I have a garbled way of saying it that's in between the two. Anyway. Say it one more time. Tres- <laughs> <laughs> Tras- no, that's what I would say. I would say trespass. No, would I? <laughs> no, you I wouldn't. Not unless yeah, you're no. completely insane. I know. I think Americans say trespass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, if you say so. Um, but Kennedy, she's an Irish writer, so she wouldn't say it in any of those ways. Who didn't start writing until later in her life? And her first collection of short stories, which I haven't read called The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac, was recommended to me by a number of people. But this is her first novel. It's a story that feels familiar in some ways, um, and I will tell you why. It's about a young Catholic woman named Kushla who has an affair with an older married Protestant man, Michael. And this is during the height of the Troubles in, in 1975, Belfast in Northern Ireland. So it's like it, it feels kind of like a setup that somebody's created for an after-school special, you know? It's like, but the bare bones of the plot does not do justice for this the sensitivity of this novel, for lack of a better word. She's just, she's a wonderful writer. Her prose is so spare. And she has such a, a depth of feeling and, and a sense for how people feel in love and grief and anger again she's very good on like how normal people cope with extraordinary circumstances and the world just comes to life as well i could i could almost smell and hear the bar that kushla's brother owns and that she works in sometimes which is the place where she meets michael or these like wonderful dinner scenes because michael asked kushla to teach irish to him and his other kind of progressive bougie Protestant friends and she like steps into this world that's completely like her own and you just see it. And it's a beautiful novel um, and it's not preachy at all. It's just human, which I think all of the best novels are. It sounds wonderful. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Lizzie Stewart and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please, please, (laughs) please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright. And this is Literary Friction.